listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. So Jeff and I are welcoming another guest today that I'm really excited about, and I, and I don't think we could have a better person for this topic. So one of the topics we want to talk about is growth during times of chaos and uncertainty. And fortunately, Jeff connected us with Gunnar Branson, who's CEO of AFIRE. And once he tells you a little bit more about that, you'll know why he's probably the perfect person to talk about this topic right now. So Gunnar, hello, and welcome to Rattle and Pedal. Thank you, Jason. Glad to be here. Well, why don't you give us, you know, the 30-second summary of AFIRE, and then we can kind of lean into our topic and, and also lean in a little bit to, to kind of how you ended up where you are. <laughs> so Fantastic. Well, it's a strange story. And like a lot of folks, you know, I have no idea how I got here. And I think it was Kierkegaard that said, life can only be explained backwards and looking back over what you did in coming here, but it, it's not what you originally planned. AFIRE is an interesting group. And I, I love answering the question, what's an AFIRE? Essentially... <laughs> It's a group of investors from around the world, institutional investors. So think large pension plans or banks or insurance companies, foundations, et cetera, that are all interested in investing in the U.S. real estate markets. So we have about 24 countries that are represented in around $3 trillion in assets amongst a very small group of just a couple of hundred investors. And they look at all the different kinds of questions around the major cities in the U.S. and how best to invest in, to participate in the communities that they serve, whether it's you know, New York or Chicago or Los Angeles, and how they're going to grow, how the risks emerge. So everything from COVID-19 to global warming are issues that they're very concerned about. But they're also different from a lot of the, what people think real estate investors are in that they're thinking the long term. So they're not rapacious developers. They're not, you know, some of the uh, stereotypes of what a real estate investor are. They are very focused on not just five years, but 10 years, 20 years. And I have one member that with a straight face tells me that their investment time horizon is 250 years. So they're really looking at the long term versus the short term, how we're going to make a lot of money off of an investment. How in the world? 250 years. Well, that, that person's probably from China, right? Actually, no, from Europe. They are operating on behalf of a very large group of regular people and constituents and they really see it as a multi-generational investment that has a steady return. And, and you look at the history of commercial real estate. So when we're talking real estate, we're not necessarily talking about people's homes. We're talking about large apartment buildings, offices, shopping centers, et cetera, that traditionally these large assets in major cities were owned by family offices. So it was very much intended as income that would go generation after generation. And when you mm -hmm. look at a large real estate asset, a building, it actually only pays for itself over an extended period of time. The way we kind of hack that in, in the real estate industry is that we work with debt and we work with selling the asset repeated times, but it doesn't actually pay for itself in the near term. So you build a building, it costs you millions of dollars. You don't actually get that back in income unless you sell the building. And at that point, you will make money. Or if you hold on to that building for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, then you're creating a steady annuity coming out of that building. I'm just curious, you've been in the real estate industry in different roles for a long while. And is this as crazy as it's ever been? Well, it's certainly the most exciting period of time in real estate. Exciting, not necessarily always in a good way, but you're seeing 
more dynamic change in this industry than you've seen since maybe the early part of the 20th century. One of the appeals of real estate for institutional investors is that it's relatively predictable and boring. It's one of the safer kind of long-term investments you can make. It's actually a way of investing in an entire sector or an entire community. So think about an office building. It has multiple tenants or a single tenant. You're not having to underwrite a particular company. You just have to underwrite a sector. So one of the best ways, I believe, to invest in high tech is not necessarily to buy shares in Google or Apple, although those are good investments. Obviously, people have made a lot of money, but you have to be right. You have to be right in terms of this is the company that's going to succeed and not necessarily be disrupted by someone else in the next five years or 10 years. If I invest in Silicon Valley real estate, I'm not making a bet for one company being successful. I'm investing in the entire sector. So the same way that the the real money during the gold rush was made by the manufacturer of blue jeans, as we know as Levi's, not necessarily the people that were trying to strike it rich with a big gold claim. He was supplying the needs of the entire industry. It was a way of investing in the industry. Buildings are the same way. Uh, Certainly office buildings and apartment buildings and shopping centers is really a way for us to invest in the activity of an entire city, an entire neighborhood, an entire industry. And you're basically betting on civilization. (laughs) You're saying, all right, this city is going to continue over an extended period of time. And there's going to be a demand for this piece of land, for the building that's on top of it going forward. So it's a lot of people think of real estate as speculative real estate or developers. And certainly at that end, it's more speculative. I'm going to build a big building and hopefully I'm going to be able to fill it and make my money back. And there's a period of time where I'm really taking some high risk. But once that building is built, It's very little risk. That's why real estate traditionally is levered considerably through debt. So 50% loan to value, or in other words, you know, borrowing a significant portion of what's there or 60 or 70% where most of it is debt. You wouldn't do that with a stock market investment, or if you did, it would be very dangerous. But because real estate is so consistent and predictable, you're able to, in a very safe and responsible way, put a lot of debt on it or or lever it considerably. But what we're experiencing right now, so we saw since, you know, basically, especially after World War II, but certainly in the 20s, a steady growth in the working age population. And that's really what we look at because working age population consumes a lot of real estate. When you think about cities, think of them as large labor markets. And that large labor market has to be housed, has to be in facilities to manufacture or to do services or anything along those lines. And of course, they have to provide for themselves in terms of supplies, in terms of you know food and clothing and, and house goods, but also entertainment and possibly even travel. So you have hospitality, hotels, etc. So the more people there are, the more demand there is for real estate. It's pretty straightforward. We're now approaching and have been approaching even before COVID a period of time where, at least in the US, you're seeing a leveling out of the growth of the working age population. If it weren't for immigration, and it seems to be that we're doing everything we can to limit immigration into this country. But if you take immigration out of the factor, we're actually shrinking in terms of the working age population, which is not a very good thing when you're thinking about growth of real estate. So a lot of what we've been doing and assumptions we've been making of regular expansion of the need for office buildings in central business districts or continued expansion of neighborhoods through the suburbs and creating more and more density in cities in terms of demand within the city limits for that amount of space. 
it's reaching some limitations, or at the very least, it's leveling out in terms of its growth. That is forcing us to rethink a lot of things. Combined with the way people use real estate has been dramatically changing over the last 10 to 20 years in terms of amount of square feet used per person in an office. Interestingly, there's a strange kind of change that occurred starting in the 1950s about how we use real estate. So you go back to the 1950s and the average amount of square feet that people had in terms of living space was less than 200 square feet per person. It was more like, you know, 100, 150. So think about homes that were being built during that time. They're very small and you'd have large families in these small buildings. But the office space, generally white collar workers had somewhere in the neighborhood of four or 500 square feet per person. Fast forward to say 2008, you had somewhere approaching six, seven, eight hundred, a thousand square feet per person in their homes. You had smaller families and larger homes, but you also had a decrease in terms of office space to 100, 150, maybe 200 square feet per person. And that number has continued to shrink. Think about co-working, think about flexible office where people are only in the office a couple of days a week. All those things have been growing over time period. And then you look at COVID and certainly the last seven months, you saw an expansion of these trends or an acceleration of these trends where people are almost not in the office at all. And that some level of that will probably continue once COVID is over. There will be people going back to the office and there is a need for that, but it probably will look different in great part because we've learned how to work from home and we've learned how to work remotely at a level that we did not see before. So all these trends are happening. They've just been accelerated in the last seven months. So Gunnar, oh, Jason, you should know this. Gunnar is a quintessential Renaissance man, but he's secretly a playwright and he knows how to weave a great story. And as you were describing, you know, where we are right now, Gunnar, I'm having visions of episodes of Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad or The Blacklist, where you have this very long story arc running across, you know, the entire series. And each episode has its own little mini story or arc that contributes to, you know, the longer story arc. And that's where I'd like to go right now. So this long story arc of growth related to real estate is driven kind of by demographics, as you said. But there are a lot of things happening underneath that economically, culturally, that are impacting that. So it's almost like you have you know, long-term winners, short-term winners, and those that win in the short-term and the long-term because of how they're, they're looking at those trends. So that's, that's one direction I want to go. And then I want another. And I'm just priming you because I know what you're going to do here, Gunnar. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to give us great insights. I put together a group of executives at the start of COVID called Friends of Jeff. And, and Gunnar was part of that wonderful Zoom exchange. And there were a couple of other real estate focused people coming from very different perspectives. And it was amazing to me in terms of long-term trends and those events happening underneath it, the chaos, if you will, how quickly they turned and were influenced by real estate in terms of, of culture and accessibility, zoning, and 
tax revenues and, and all of these things that are macroeconomics that impact all these individual business, their recruiting of top talent, their retaining of top talent, and just growth in, in general. So can you talk a little bit about that that episodic chaos underneath the, the long-term trends and, and how it accelerates or deaccelerates? You know, not just in real estate, but generally. Well, first off, I've never thought of this as a Game of Thrones, but that, that's absolutely <laughs> brilliant. I mean, I, I love the way that you're thinking about it in terms of there's an arc. There's something that goes over an extended period of time. But within that, there's there's quite a bit of fluctuation. And certainly that's where investors, if they're lucky, if they're good, they're really living in that kind of day-to-day moment and the ups and downs that happen there. The better ones are thinking more long-term. Yes, that's fascinating, a way of thinking about it. Part of what I think is constantly interesting about real estate is indeed that we spend, I don't know, 80, 90% of our lives inside some form of building. One, it's a way of looking at civilization, a way of seeing what a, a group of people actually want and how they behave, how they adapt real estate, how they change it, how they build it is, is very much an expression of civilization. It's an expression of culture. It's an expression of sociology. All of those things are there. And quite often it's unconscious. Quite often we don't know what we're doing as we do it. It it contains everything. And it's often invisible. People don't think of commercial real estate as even a thing. I just need to get some office space. So I'm going to rent some office space. They don't think of it as being something that's shaping the way we think and the way we work, the way we play, and we shape it. So there's certainly a relationship back and forth. So much of what we think of as permanent in real estate is actually not. Most buildings, homes and offices and, and everything else are adapted many times during its lifespan. And they're adapted to what the actual needs of the users are. So if anyone has a a house that's older than 10 years, it's probably been changed significantly. You quite often look at around the homes that are around you. I live in Chicago and a lot of the homes are 100 plus years old. They've been adapted quite a bit to adjust to human beings and and the way that we are doing things and what we're changing. But at the same time, you have these older bits and pieces that are constantly shaping us, even though we don't know about it. An example, think about the the formal living room. And quite often, the formal living room inside an older building, an older home, quite often it's beautiful. It has the nice furniture. It has the beautiful collection of glass figurines, whatever it is. But People are never in there. Uh, We spend all our time in the kitchen and you you have a party and everyone tends to gravitate to the kitchen and, you know, the space around the kitchen because we feel very comfortable about it and we can get food there. So that tends to be kind of the center of operations. And that living room is often a dead space, an expensive dead space that we have. And a lot of people don't know where that came from. It's it's almost something that's a, a relic left over from another time and place. And we've We still build formal living rooms and we don't even know why, because we don't think of a house as being really a house unless it has a formal living room. And the real reason that living rooms emerged was a time before funeral homes. So before you had funeral homes, in other words, a place where after we die, people are put in a coffin and and we go to a funeral home in order to pay our last respects and and come together as a community and, and be able to formally help people pass from life to death, at least the community does, so that we're all able to create some closure. Historically, however, before, you know, kind of industrialization in the 20th century, people would put their loved ones in a coffin and they would lay them out in the living room. 
it's actually not a living room. It's a, it's a dying room. And it would be a formal space to bring everyone together to say goodbye. So it's interesting that it, today it's a dead space. It was always a dead space. It's something that we no longer use for that purpose. And in fact, intelligent design right now omits the living room completely. And think about what the great room is. In other words, a room that somehow includes a kitchen. It has the television set. It has the comfortable couches or chairs. And that's a place where the family spends most of their time, where guests spend most of their time. That the space had to be evolved. And that's how we work. I got a little bit off subject there, (laughs) but it's an interesting way to think about how real estate grows. And real estate also tells you what people want. If you look at how people adapt space, it tells you what they actually want. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. Almost everything in real estate comes from something else. So think about I did spend time in the theater early on in my career. And one of the things that was interesting to me about it was where the space came from. Why do theaters look the way they do? What's the start of it? Think about the modern theater. Think of a stage and a bunch of chairs facing the stage where we watch it. Where did that come from? So what do you think? Where did that come from, Jeff, Jason? Well, I would imagine it was the Greeks, right? I mean, I, I, you know, I, right. I stood at the, top, at the top of the Acropolis and looked down the hill at the, the theater below. So the, the first kind of theaters in Greece, what did they come from? What was it that people adapted in order to create that space? They would have adapted a fire, right? Sure. I mean, collecting around the fire, but those larger theaters, those larger spaces, where did they come from? Literally no idea. I would think the vision that comes to me is a leader standing on a hill addressing the people. Very close. Very close. It's actually the opposite of that. So in Greece, you have, obviously, it's a very hilly terrain, right? You have, you know, all these kinds of hills. The, the way that a Greek theater works is actually the stage is down below. So you would stand at the base of a hill and then all the audience were sitting on the hill going on. Mm. And then you think about the theaters and, and this went into Rome and actually it still exists in spaces that are built from scratch today. The audience is actually above the theater. That works really well acoustically. It works visually that way. Everyone has a good sight line. They're able to see whoever's speaking down at the bottom, that it was actually an adaptation of the landscape that was there. If you didn't have the hills in Greece, theaters would probably look a bit different. And when you think about, okay, you go forward in time, the European theater was created by two different found spaces. So in the Middle Ages, performers would basically have all their belongings in a, in a cart that was drawn by horses. And then they would set up shop in a courtyard of, you know, maybe an inn or hotel or something along those lines. And in the courtyard, they'd put, they'd stand up on top of their cart and they would perform. And people would either stand in the, in the area around the cart, looking up at the cart, or they'd be in the rooms of the inn or of the houses around it. And they would observe from the, the windows or the balconies. And that became a design that then was responded to and built specifically towards. So think about the Globe, which is the theater that Shakespeare worked out of, a wooden space that essentially had a ground area where everyone would stand looking up at a platform. 
And you also had the balconies around it. And that theater shaped the way that Shakespeare wrote. It also, the theater itself was a response to that building, which came out of kind of accepted practice and the landscape that you had around you. Interestingly, in the French theater, it didn't come from the courtyard. It came, you think about Moliere, came from indoor tennis courts, that they were adapting those spaces to create theater. It was always an adaptation. Go forward to the 20th century, and you had a lot of theaters that came from the Greeks. You know, you think about large theaters where you see Broadway shows. But then there was another space, a found space in the 70s. In the inner cities like New York and Chicago, you had storefronts and you had abandoned warehouses. And you created a new form of theater space called the black box. Essentially, you'd go into a a raw space that was pretty run down. You'd paint all the walls black. You'd set up some chairs and then you'd, you'd have a theater. Again, found space, changing into something else. The same way that the living room came from a dying room and how that evolved over time. The same thing is happening today as we're adapting found space in order to do something different. So real estate, we think of it as lasting forever. And there are certain buildings that we keep the same over time, and eventually they become museums to themselves. They're not necessarily efficient space. We keep it exactly the same. And then there are spaces that we adapt. So think about what happened in New York City also in the 60s and 70s. We had a lot of empty space, especially in downtown, 19th century warehouse space and factory space. And we turned it into art studios. We turned it into performance spaces. We turned it into high-end living or loft living. It became so popular that up until very recent times, you find developers building new apartment buildings that essentially look like 19th century warehouses that are adapted into a new space. So a lot of the design cues of a modern apartment building are quite often borrowing from 19th century industrial buildings. I want to close with one question before we have to wrap. And that question is, how do you spot the long-term trends and discern them from the short-term fads? And I'll use your living room example real fast, then I'll let you answer the question. I live in an old neighborhood. My home's 70 years old. When the first time I went to a newer neighborhood where the homes are maybe 10 years old, I noticed there were no living rooms. The first thing you got when you came in the door was an office. And I, and I hated it. That was awful. Of course, right now, those people are probably much better positioned than, than those of us who have these living rooms we don't know what to do with in a pandemic. So how do you discern the fad from the trend? And that is the crux of the matter. How do you differentiate? There are a couple of things that help us decide that. And you know, there's no one has a crystal ball. No one can really predict the future. We have theories about where it's going and we have trends that help us understand it, but we still don't know exactly. No one predicted really COVID-19 happening specifically the way it did other than epidemiologists. You know, We weren't really thinking that way seven months ago. So when we think about long versus short term and real versus fad, there's a couple different ways to explore that and understand it. And my favorite way of looking at it is something called desire lines. When you look at what people do unconsciously and what a large number of people do over time. So a desire line is usually thought of as you're in a park or you're on a college campus. You see all these mud tracks that are not necessarily following the exact paths. They're like little shortcuts that people take. And they grow over time. They're also something that cannot be resisted. 
So, you know, the landscape guy says, oh, I hate this muddy path. It's making everything look terrible. It's, you know, killing my grass. They'll put a big rock in the middle of the path to try to stop people from doing that. And then you have two desire lines of people going around the rock <laughs> because that's the direction that they want to go. And even unconsciously, we do that. So how do you translate that to long-term versus short-term trends? The master of this over the last 50 years was the late Steve Jobs. And people would talk about Steve Jobs being some sort of wizard that understood what we wanted before we knew that that's what we wanted. But what he did, and even when he talked about it, is he would identify desire lines and then act accordingly. And one of the most you know dramatic desire lines that he discovered, and one of the ways you discover desire lines is to figure out how are people adapting the world around them to do what it's supposed to do. So we sell products if we're in the you know business world. And then quite often, the consumers of that product will change it in order to perform what we need it to actually do. And we unconsciously do that. We constantly are fixing things in order to work better. So the music industry was selling a bundled product up through the end of the 20th century called the album. You know, And we did it with vinyl and then we did it with CDs that would have 10, 20 songs on it. And that was the only way you could buy songs. But there was another trend that was happening where people were adapting that product to better suit their needs. And that was the mixtape. I grew up in the you know 60s, 70s, and 80s, and we were constantly creating mixtapes, cassette tapes. And we would give them as gifts. We would use them as ways to you know have my favorite songs or different moods, et cetera. And Steve Jobs saw that trend, saw that we were doing that over time. And no one really paid that much attention to it. You know, who cares about kids that are putting together their own mixtapes? However, he saw that that was a desire that was there. He then created, obviously, there was the music players that he created using MP3 technology, which had been developed actually in the late 80s, but no one had really picked it up yet until you had Napster and other kind of groups figuring out how to pirate music on your computers. But he looked at that and they went, what if we sell individual songs. What happens if we sell individual songs and make it easy for people to create their own mixtapes or their own lists? What happens then? And by selling individual songs, by breaking up the package that the music industry had, by the way, the music industry dismissed this and they legally tried to stop it, you know, things like Napster. And what happened? Well, within seven years, not a very long period of time, within seven years, half of the music industry was no longer with the music companies. It was coming through a computer company. If you talk to anyone that's in the commercial business and you say, you could have half your business disappear in the next seven years, then obviously people would freak out. We don't necessarily pay too close attention. Doesn't matter how sophisticated your industry is, how technologically advanced. If you start seeing customers adapting your product, you are now vulnerable to someone else providing precisely what that product is. So I find the way to separate or differentiate between fads and long-term trends is to learn how to follow how people are adapting their space, how people are creating mud paths. And, and by the way, the more traffic you see on a mud path, the wider the path is, the less, the smaller the path is. And there are groups that create, especially in Europe, that instead of creating the paths between buildings ahead of time, they essentially put grass all over the place with no paths between the buildings. So think of college campus and then wait a year and then observe where people walked and then put the paths right there, wherever they walked. The big paths on that those big muddy paths, because that's where everyone wants to walk and the smaller paths 
wherever you see a light track. You can do the same thing with trends if you observe what people do over time. See how easy that is, Jason? <laughs> it's, it's funny. Yeah, that's a wrap. That's, All right, everybody take that. Run with it. That's the legend of how the Oval was created at Ohio State. At least that's the urban legend of it. We're going to wrap up because this was amazing, by the way. Gunnar, we have to have you back in some capacity in the future if you'll accept our invitation. But thank you so much. This was such a fascinating conversation. And I was enthralled the entire time, which is why I was speechless. I mean, as Jeff knows, it's rare that I'm speechless for 30 minutes. And I was completely speechless. I think I said five words. So it was incredible. Well, well, well thank you, Jason, for, for putting up with my verbosity. But I, I really appreciate it. And it's really been fun to talk with you and Jeff today. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Gunnar. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher.